It was a very cruel scene. Executed in an unusual manner. Cruel Coven. Hello, my little buttercup babies. Welcome to Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. My name is Tori. I'm Katie. And if you're new around here, you will never be the same. You'll never be the same. No, we talk about, what do we talk about? We talk about true crime. Murder. Murder, conspiracies. Disappearances. Disappearances. Sometimes ghosty shit. Sometimes. You know, all that. So you're in for a really wild ride. And if you don't like that kind of stuff, I'm sorry, but you can see yourself out. There's the door, Tor. <laughs> I got the door, Tor. Okay, here we if are. If you guys know oh. what that's from, I'll send you a sticker, a surprise sticker. I got the door, Tor. I got the door, Tor. Do you know how many times people <laughs> said that to me? One guy in particular said that to me a lot, <laughs> middle school and high school yeah. when I saw him. <laughs> Every time he held the door open for you. I got Don't the worry. door, Tor. I got the door, Tor. Um, but anyway, wow, here mm-hmm. we are. Here we are. We are here. Should we jump into our articles? Let's dive. You want me to go? Yeah, go. You want me to leave? Go. All right. My article is titled Rhode Island Teen. This is such a sweet one. Oh, oh my good. God. It's an uplifting okay. boy. Good. Rhode Island Teen buys contents of storage units at auction to return to owners. Oh, love that. This little pumpkin let me tell you this is from local12.com and it's written by wjar staff oh okay all right so whoever that is a high school sophomore in rhode island has turned a hobby into an act of kindness for the past several years 16 year old shane jones has been collecting secondhand items it's just something fun to do doesn't usually take up space i focus on small stuff bottles coins and i go to yard sales said jones i metal detect I like recovering things. This child is like my parents' dream child. (laughs) They really wish that they would have gotten him for a child. They want him to be their son. A few months ago, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Jones said he discovered how to purchase a storage unit at auction. I watch different people who are buying them off YouTube, said Jones. I had some money saved from a job I worked last summer, so I bought one for about $100. The first unit he purchased was from a facility in Providence. He took the trip up there to empty it out and see what kind of treasure was inside. Originally, his plan was to sell the items, but then the reality of why he was able to purchase the storage unit in the first place set in for him. I started off hoping to keep some of it and then throw out the rest, but then I realized that this isn't just something like yard sales where they gave it to me and sold it to me. This is where their stuff was taken because they couldn't pay for it. Uh, yeah. There was mail and a lot of personal documents in a pile. That's the time I realized this is not just junk. This is someone's personal belongings that they lost. Jones made it his mission to track down the former owner. When he couldn't get in touch with him, he said he found the man's mother who had been living in a nursing home, and he offered to give her all of the items. Most recently, he purchased a large unit from an auction in Johnston. Once again, he made it his mission to track down the previous owner. It was a woman from Connecticut. She fell on hard times, couldn't get the stuff back, and most of the stuff was baby stuff, said Jones. Her baby passed away. Jones arranged a time and a place for the woman to pick up her stuff. She then messaged Jones's mother to let them know she'd been in tears because the items in the storage unit had been all she had left of her baby. Oh my god. 
Gratitude, really a lot of gratitude. She was just really happy, said Jones. I don't mind doing this when I have the funds. It's not mine. They didn't purposely give it to me, so why let other people suffer as I succeed? Wow. Isn't he just the sweetest little potato pie? The sweetest little sweet pea. 14. Wow. And you know, I love that he has such a kind heart. Yeah. And I really hope that the world doesn't spoil him. I know. Look at him. This is him. <gasps> what a little cutie. You know who he reminds me of? Hmm. Bobby. Yeah. Doesn't my uncle. He? Yeah. Yeah, your uncle. Mm-hmm. Uh, a pure little angel baby. My heart. Wow. That's a nice article. Yeah. Good pick. Thanks. What's your pick? Well, mine came to us from our little love bug, Dee. Oh, okay. Dee sent it to me via Facebook, and she said, here's the headline for you, friend. (laughs) So the article that she sent me is from abc7.com, and there is no, does not say the author. Sorry about that. But I do know that it came out Friday, May 28th of 2021. Everything that I'm about to say is a direct quote from the ABC.7, nope, from the ABC7.com article. The headline is, Guards didn't notice self-styled Satanist beheaded cellmate in California prison, reports find. Oh, that's the bad kind of Satanist. Bad. Not the good kind. Bad, bad, bad. Wow. Okay, I want to hear this. Corcoran, California. Shortly after the sadistic torture slaying and beheading of a convicted killer in a California prison, apparently at the hands of his cellmate, prison guards making their rounds reported that both men were alive, according to two news reports from the state inspector's general office. The reports on California lockups raised new questions about the heinous attack at Corcoran State Prison in March 2019 that has prompted investigations and a lawsuit by the family of the victim, Luis Romero, the Los Angeles Times reported Wednesday. Jaime Osuna, 31, is accused of using a makeshift knife to decapitate and dissect Romero. He fashioned a knife. He made a knife. He either fashioned a knife or somehow snuck it around. And he decapitated the, the, the person with a homemade knife? And dissected And di- dissected. Mm-hmm. To study? I don't know. I've never read this before. But <laughs> <laughs> it says, removing an eye, a finger, and a portion of the man's lung, state uh. documents show. What the fuck? One of the reports faults the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation for conducting a shoddy investigation and delaying disciplinary action against the guards. Why the officers did not discover the grisly scene earlier is not detailed in the reports, the Times said. But a lawsuit by Romero's family says the bars were covered by a white sheet, suggesting the guards failed to make a thorough check of the cell. You know, I have seen in some of like the prison shows, um, there's one that there's, there's a man that goes around to the prisons and talks to the different inmates. And I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but I have seen white sheets over some of them. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Never thought twice about it. The Department of Corrections disputed the findings of the reports, saying in a statement it had conducted a, quote, thorough and complete investigation from the very beginning, end quote. Seems like you didn't. I was going to say. Seems meh. like there's something a little... I don't believe you. The family's lawsuit also questions why Romero was in a cell with Osuna, a convicted killer and, quote, self-styled Satanist, end quote, with a history of attacking his cellmates, according to the newspaper. Quote, the idea that my client had to sue in order to get basic questions answered about her son's death is disheartening, said Justin Sterling, the attorney for Romero's mother. 
The guards were meant to check the cell every so often, Sterling told the Times, and the crime would have taken hours to commit. I mean, yeah, yeah. he had to kill him and dissect him and dismember him. Yeah, and that's your job. Not not dismembering, but the guards. You gotta at least peek in there. If the guards had been doing their required checks, Romero would be alive today, he said. Romero, who had spent 27 years in prison, was put in the cell with Osuna after arriving from Mule Creek State Prison, according to the lawsuit. He was convicted of second-degree murder after fatally shooting a woman in Compton Wow! when he was a teenager and associating with gang members. He was nearing parole eligibility. Oh, wow. His new cellmate, Osuna, was serving a life sentence for the killing and torture of Yvette Pena, 37, at a Bakersfield motel in 2011. With face tattoos and flair for Charles Manson-like satanic antics, he became a dark figure during the 2017 trial, mocking the victim's family and bragging to a television news reporter of his love for torturing people. Fuck you. Oh, okay. Fuck you. Yeah, that doesn't really just go away when you're in prison, I I don't think. You know? No, I feel like there should have been... I mean, who are we? Right. But I feel like if that's the crime that he committed, Mm -hmm. wouldn't there be different kind of precautions? Or maybe there was. Yeah. Sometime in the early hours of March 9th, 2019, Osuna methodically tortured and killed Romero, authorities said. Using a razor-style blade attached to a handle, Osuna ultimately cut Romero's head. He also posed the body slicing Romero's face open on either side of his mouth to resemble an extended smile, according to an autopsy. No. Jesus Christ. Guards found Osuna wearing a necklace made of Romero's body parts, Mm. the Times said. No. No. Wow. Dude had a body part necklace. Yeah. Kings County Executive Assistant District Attorney Phil Esbenshade called it the most heinous slaying he had ever seen. Quote, we do believe that the victim was conscious during at least a portion of the time. End quote, he said. Osuna has been transferred to Salinas Valley State Prison's psychiatric inpatient program. He has been diagnosed with unspecified schizophrenia spectrum, antisocial personality disorder, and borderline personality disorder, according to the newspaper. A judge has ruled that Osuna is not competent to stand trial for Romero's death. Wow. And that is the end of that article. You know what I find appalling? The body part necklace? Very appalling. But I'm stuck on the fact that he was just now diagnosed with schizophrenia spectrum, antisocial mm-hmm. personality personality disorder, and borderline B- B- BPD. Yeah. Just now. Mm-hmm. Like, we maybe we could have done that before. Maybe that would have been looked into when he tortured Committed. a woman in right. a hotel room, was right. it? Yeah. And then the other guy was so close to parole. Not that what he did. He did his time. You yeah. Know? Right. Right. Not that I'm siding with another murderer. Of course but, not. But of shit, course not. No one deserves their, to be murdered Murdered, like dismembered, well, tortured, dismembered. Right. And then have your body parts on display via a necklace. Mm-hmm. So fucked up. Ooh, yikes, man. Wow. That was the number one thank you to our little love, D. We love you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for sending me that because you know I don't get my own articles. <laughs> and if I do, I surely don't read them. <laughs> D always makes me smile. I love her. You know someone else who always makes me smile? All of them. Our little shit biscuit, Sarah. <laughs> I love me some Sarah. Sarah sent us a Q-O-T-D-W. 
and she was saying how hard that is to say, and it is hard to say. Q-O-T-D-D-W. Sarah has such a beautiful accent. She probably won't get this reference because she's from Australia, but you know what her voice sounds like? Melting butter on a hot day. it feels like? What? Texas Roadhouse rolls with their cinnamon butter fuck me up oozing out the sides Mm, i just want to devour them and we're gonna play her question hello my dumplings um it is sarah coming at you with a voice memo coming at you from all the way in melbourne where we are currently in lockdown because we've had a fresh couple of cases of covid so we are um in a circuit lockdown And I'm coming at you with some Q-O-T-D-W's because I have four. (laughs) All right, first one. If money was never a problem and failure was not an option, what profession would you have liked to do and why? First of all, Sarah, I do not have a dream job because I do not dream of labor. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like... And we've talked about this. I would love to be an investigative journalist. Yeah. Don't know if I have the chops, but she said failure is not an option. No, so you would have the chops. Yeah. Or an investigator in general. Yeah. I, when I was younger, the first two things I wanted to be, one was a veterinarian Mm -hmm. and the second one was an investigative journalist. And I have them both on papers Yeah. (laughs) from my first grade and my third grade projects. My mom still has. And I'm willing to bet that the third grade one, when I put investigative journalist, is because of the John Bonet Ramsey mm-hmm. case when my mom was like obsessed with it. Yeah. But that would be amazing to do that. Or also to be an author and make money. <laughs> you know? I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, retired. Yeah. You should probably figure it out. I would like to be a cat lady who lives in a castle with a balcony and a long flowy robe. And a big string set of pearls yes yeah i hope that that answers your question because truly honestly sincerely what is manual labor and we will play and answer your other ones yeah in the future mm-hmm. now in case you're new and you haven't been here before what we're gonna do now is we're gonna do one case in the beginning of the pod we used to each do one per episode Mm-hmm. Now, we really decided that we wanted to go into depth and not just provide a brief, concise summary so mm-hmm. we can fit it into an hour. Right. So now every single episode is one big ass, long, in-depth, thorough case for your ears. And I've got a big boy for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. It was early December of 1995 in Medford, Oregon, and 53-year-old Roxanne Ellis and 42-year-old Michelle Abdil had both been missing for three days. Three days? Three days. Did anyone know about it? People knew that they were missing. People were looking for them. The last thing that anyone knew was that Roxanne had an 11 o'clock a.m. appointment to show a vacant apartment in a complex on Sheraton Court to a prospective tenant. Okay. She and Michelle, along with Roxanne's daughter, Lori, had opened a property management company together. And this call, the call that Roxanne got to show this empty apartment, it was a last-minute call. It wasn't on the appointment books. But the real estate industry in Medford at the time was super competitive. So, of course, Roxanne jumped at the chance to show the apartment and close the deal. Sure. 
So when Roxanne got this last minute call from the prospective tenant, all she wrote down in her appointment book was 11 o'clock and the address of the apartment. She didn't include a name for the person interested in the property, and it was protocol to take down the name, phone number, and address of a prospective customer. But Roxanne, for whatever reason, didn't do that, probably because it was a last minute showing. So since Roxanne's daughter, Lori, worked at the property management company too, she knew something was wrong when Roxanne missed a two o'clock showing that day. Okay, gotcha. So Roxanne had gone to the 11 o'clock one, she missed the two o'clock one. Got it. And Lori worked there too, and she's like, what the fuck, where's my mother? After not hearing from Roxanne for several hours, Lori was getting really anxious because it wasn't like her mom to miss appointments, and it wasn't like her to not check in. Roxanne had a cell phone and a pager, and Lori called and paged her over 30 times with no answer. And she said usually her mom would, as soon as she was done with whatever she was doing, she would get in contact. She would reply to the messages. Sure. And she would probably talk about how it went. Right. Exactly. They worked together. This was their company. Right. It wasn't until 4 p.m., this was December 4th, 1995, that Roxanne finally called Lori and told her that she was going out for some shopping. Hold on. So Lori called her, beeped her, tried to reach her mm-hmm. 30 times. Yeah. And then no Roxanne response. randomly yeah. calls? And, then, yep. and it's and then, her? Like she called, like her yes, voice? Yes, she's sure it was her mom. Wow. Okay. Lori would later testify that during that phone call, Roxanne was uncharacteristically quiet. Lori asked Roxanne, like, what's up with the two o'clock appointment? Why didn't you show up? And Roxanne mumbled something along the lines of she must have had the address wrong. So that's why she didn't show up. And that was not like her. And she owned we, the company. Right. And how do we know how long it was after two when she called? This was four o'clock p.m. So I feel like if she wouldn't have, like thinking about her work integrity and the fact that it was her business that she built from the ground up and this is her daughter, mm-hmm. I feel like two o'clock rolls around, you would call her and say, right. hey, I can't find, the address is wrong. Exactly. It ain't right. Right. And then Lori's like, well, I called you a million times. Why didn't you pick up? And Roxanne said something about how all of the phone circuits must have been busy. What? So that's why she didn't call back. Like I said, Lori knew that this was her mom on the other end of the phone, but something wasn't right. Okay. So at around 4.30 or 5 p.m., so shortly after that phone call with Lori, Roxanne called her partner, Michelle, and told her that her car battery was dead, and she needed Michelle to come pick her up. God. She was stranded at the Sheridan Court Apartments, which is weird because she just told Lori she was shopping. Right. But now she's at the apartments that she was supposed to be at at 11 in the morning. Right. Okay. So, so she's probably been there the entire time. Mm-hmm. Now, Michelle was at work at the property management office, and so was Lori. So Michelle told Lori, your mother needs help with her car. I need to go. I have to go. My partner needs me, but I'll keep you updated and let you know what's going on. So after that phone call, no one heard from either Roxanne or Michelle ever again. God damn. Okay. Later that night, after not hearing from either of them, Lori drove to that Sheraton Court apartment complex where Roxanne had the 11 a.m. showing. Oh, no. You call someone Mm -hmm. and have them go with you. You don't do it alone. Yes. If you don't want to call the police, at least have a buddy. Yeah. Okay? Buddy system. Because we love you. So Lori turned into the parking lot of the complex, and she actually saw Roxanne's pickup truck driving away. As she was pulling in. 
As she was pulling in, her mom's truck was leaving. Now, remember, we know Roxanne had that appointment there. At 11. At 11 that morning. But she called Lori several hours later saying that she was going shopping. 4 p.m. So Yeah, at 4. So somehow, Roxanne's truck was still at the complex and someone was driving off in it. Yeah, okay. Not not right. Mm-mm. Lori tried to follow the truck. God, she's a little fucking sleuth. She was not having any of no. this. No. She was done. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to flag down the driver. She was flashing her headlights at them, oh, behind God. them. But whoever was in the truck sped off and they managed to get away. Wow. Okay. So after the truck was gone, Lori pulled into a gas station parking lot and called Michelle's mother. Lori told Michelle's mom that something was very wrong, and Michelle's mom sent her son, Michelle's brother Dan, to the Sheraton Court Apartments where Lori met up with him. The two kind of looked around, they scanned the parking lot, and eventually they noticed Michelle's car oh God. parked in front of the entrance to the unit that Roxanne was showing. Okay, so now they know that they were both there. Yep. Michelle's car was unlocked, and her purse was sitting inside of it in plain view. This is when Lori and Dan called the police. Yeah, okay. Lori also went into the empty apartment. Lori? <laughs> but she found that it was spotless. There wasn't a trace of anything left behind that she could see, at least. Really? Mm-hmm. So. And it was an empty apartment, you said? It was an empty apartment for showing, yep. Now, before we get into the investigation, I want to tell you a little bit about Roxanne and Michelle. In 1983, Roxanne was working as an obstetrics nurse. She was a divorced mother of two children, and she was just trying to do her best. And eventually, Michelle Abdil was hired on at the same doctor's office. And the rest was history. It was history. They fell in love. Roxanne and Michelle, they grew close as co-workers and friends, and they eventually became a couple. They settled together in Colorado Springs, but the thing was, Colorado Springs is very conservative, I'm not sure about now, but I know it was then. In 1995. Yeah, in the early 90s, 80s and 90s. And not so fun fact, Colorado Springs was and is still home to an organization called Focus on the Family. Oh, God. I can't even yeah. imagine. Here's a little blurb from the Focus on the Family website. Quote, Focus on the Family is a global Christian ministry dedicated to helping families thrive. We provide help and resources for couples to build healthy marriages that reflect God's design and for parents to raise their children according to morals and values grounded in biblical principles. So if you're, if you know, you know, that means they're huge, giant, dork-ass homophobes. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're trying to say it in a nice way. Right. You could have just said, we are homophobes, Mm -hmm. instead of saying, we want to raise your children right with the mom and a dad and we have all of the answers with god's design yeah we're gonna help you get right with the lord you're a liar (laughs) so this organization was founded by psychologist james dobson um and focus on the family is known for outlandish and extremely false claims about the lgbtq plus community which they base on trash research and science and the southern poverty law center actually categorizes focus on the family as an extremist group wow so, I could, yeah. yeah that makes sense they're real big assholes yeah so for lack of a, actually for a great term yeah so in 1992 colorado voters approved an amendment to the colorado state constitution this was amendment two that would have prevented any city 
town, or county in the state from taking any legislative, executive, or judicial action to recognize homosexuals or bisexuals as a protected class. Backers of this amendment portrayed it as outlawing quote-unquote special rights for gays, lesbians, and bisexuals. And by special rights, they're, they're talking about human rights. Yeah, right, right. This amendment was eventually deemed unconstitutional in 1996, but obviously that amendment being voted into the Colorado state constitution left a legacy that was problematic right. and homophobic on a very deep level. Ew, I hate that. So it was voted in in 1992, and plenty of people were outraged, and Colorado was deemed the hate state. Ooh, really? I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Colorado Springs was feeling very unsafe for Roxanne and Michelle in the early 90s, so this is when the couple moved to Medford, Oregon. They thought that starting over in this small town setting would give them a chance to live openly as a couple and just be you know, be themselves. Like a basic human right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 So after Roxanne and Michelle settled in Medford, everything was going smoothly. They bought an old craftsman-style house to restore. They opened their property management company, and they spent a lot of time with Roxanne's three-year-old granddaughter. Aw, cutie. Yeah, they liked to go hiking and canoeing, and Roxanne and Michelle were both elected to the board of the church that they attended. It seems like they were getting almost everything they wanted out of their move. It was still the early 90s, though, and they were a lesbian couple, but they decided they weren't just going to sit back and allow hate and discrimination to dominate their new lives. They joined their local chapter of what was then known as Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, it's now known as P-Flag, and it's just as wholesome as it sounds. Roxanne and Michelle took care of friends living with HIV and AIDS. They did a lot of activism work, including fighting two Oregon State ballot initiatives in 1992 and 1993. Those were Measure 9, which called for an amendment to the Oregon State Constitution that would declare homosexuality, quote, abnormal, wrong, unnatural, and perverse. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And that's fucked up enough on its own, but that measure actually lumped homosexuality in with pedophilia. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other ballot initiative that Roxanne and Michelle helped fight was Measure 19, which called for restricted library access to materials related to homosexuality. Which is fucking insane to me. Mm-hmm. And and that measure lumped together homosexuality-related library materials with child pornography. How? Mm-hmm. How? Yeah. But the good thing is both measures failed. But just like in Colorado and so many other states, it left a marred legacy when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights and protections and freedoms. Sure. So just the fact that there there are people that wanted that. Right. You know? In their community. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like exactly. how disheartening and upsetting and just like disgusting, really yeah. disgusting. Right. Wow. So, despite all of the good that Roxanne and Michelle were doing, completely escaping hatred and discrimination for their sexual orientation was unfortunately impossible. The couple did live their lives out, and the LGBTQ plus community in Medford and the surrounding area was growing, but the locals weren't very happy about that. They didn't like seeing it. You know, you like, know what? <laughs> 
I Boo can't. fucking who. Uh, that is I like don't the care. one thing that I hear so often. I don't care if they do it, but they could at least do it not in the public. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? If you, like, why does it, why are you so bothered? Maybe that's an internal problem, honey. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should look at that. Yeah. Maybe you should go to therapy. I have yeah. a therapist. Would you like a recommendation? <laughs> I know a few good people. Oh. So in this atmosphere, Lori feared for her mom and Michelle's safety. She said, quote, the fear was always there that someone would hurt them because of who they were, how out they were, and how many closed-minded people are still out there. I always felt something bad was going to happen, end quote. And also probably how active they were in the community mm-hmm. and how they were activists. Right. And so they're going to potentially be targets. Right. And I'm sure that right. that's how she felt and that because, was terrifying to her. Right. In 1995, so back to the beginning of the story when the couple goes missing, they'd been together for 12 years at that point. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh. So now we're going to get back into after the police were called, after Lori saw Roxanne's truck being driven away, and Lori and Dan finding Michelle's car at the apartment complex. Okay. The first thing the police do is interview some tenants at the Sheridan Court Apartments. Tony Newman and her 14-year-old son, Chris, who were tenants of Roxanne's, told the police that during the afternoon of December 4th, the day in question, Chris saw Roxanne's truck parked in front of the apartment that she was showing. And then later on that evening, they saw Roxanne's truck backed into the empty garage of that apartment. Mm, I hate that. Mm Mm-hmm. Chris also told police that he'd talked to a guy that afternoon in the driveway of that empty apartment. This guy told Chris that he was going to be his new neighbor, and he was just there moving in a few of his belongings. Tony said that when she got home from work that evening, December 4th, she also saw a man outside in front of the empty apartment. Tony and Chris gave their descriptions of the man, and a police sketch was drawn up. So the thing was, everyone was pretty sure that this man was the man who Roxanne was supposed to show that apartment to. Sure. And he was their main suspect, or they needed to speak with him at the very least. Sure. But Roxanne didn't take his name or phone number or address down when she made the appointment, and all they had to go on was this witness description. And and that's not much. Right. So they kept on working the case. They put flyers out with Roxanne and Michelle's photos and descriptions and a description of Roxanne's truck, and they offered a $20,000 reward for information leading to their whereabouts. But for four days, all of this happened in four days. Really? No leads were found, and Michelle and Roxanne remained missing. That is an actual nightmare. Mm Mm-hmm. On December 7th, 1995, a cable TV worker spotted Roxanne's truck in a parking lot in Medford. This worker went to check out the truck, and as he got closer, he saw the bodies of Roxanne Ellis and Michelle Abdil inside. Oh, honeys. They'd been bound with duct tape, gagged, and both shot in the head twice. Their bodies were wrapped up in drapes and covered with cardboard boxes. The person who found the truck and the and the bodies reported what they'd seen to the police, and a witness known as Van Duzer, I couldn't find a first name, sure, told the police that he'd seen and spoken to a man on the evening of December 4th who had parked Roxanne's truck in that parking lot and then walked away. Van Duzer described the man, and another police sketch was made and distributed, but they still didn't know who their suspect was. 
The discovery of the bodies obviously caused the local LGBTQ plus community concern. Of course. Since Roxanne and Michelle had fought for gay rights and they were out as a couple and had been threatened in the past, there was at least one police report of them being threatened. Really? Yeah. It was starting to become clear that this could have very well been a hate crime. The National Gay and Lesbian Task Force wrote to Attorney General Janet Reno to request that the United States Department of Justice assist local authorities in their investigation. They were ready to fucking move. Yeah, absolutely. Rightfully so. On December 10th, 1995, three days after the bodies were found, a woman named Darlene called the police station saying that she saw the sketch of the suspect and it looked awfully familiar and she might know who it is. She thinks it might be her son. Yikes. Mm -hmm, Darlene. She told the police that her son was acting very oddly on the day Roxanne and Michelle disappeared. His behavior was just off. She told them that she'd moved to Medford from California three weeks ago with her son and that Roxanne had taken them to view some apartments. Oh, okay. So he would have known her. Yes. Darlene was interviewed in person, and during that interview, she showed the police the cardboard boxes she was using during her move. The boxes happened to have the same labels on them as the boxes that were found covering Roxanne and Michelle's bodies. This man, Darlene's son, was 27-year-old Robert Ackrement. Why do I feel like we're going to need to remember that name? I mean, you could call him Robert Excrement. That I works could. too. That works okay. too. So we don't like him. We do not. In a later interview, when Darlene was asked why she gave up her son, she said, quote, I called the police because I have to look God in the face. I will do anything in my power to make sure other people aren't hurt. But right now, he's sick. End quote. Oh, God. Yeah. Can you imagine? I feel like we've talked about this before, but being in that position as a mother. No. Right? I mean, I just, oh, my God. No, because it's your child and you're supposed right. to love them no matter what. But and protect them I no think, matter what. And I think I said this too. I think part of loving them is making them be held accountable Holding for what they do. Holding them accountable. Yeah, you know? for sure. So the same day that Robert's mother was interviewed by police, his brother Kenneth was also interviewed. Kenneth told police that just before Roxanne and Michelle went missing, Robert had made a phone call from where Kenneth worked, the Tiki Lounge. And after checking Roxanne's caller ID, it was confirmed that she did, in fact, receive a phone call from the Tiki Lodge. So Robert was calling Roxanne, a solid connection, not to mention the boxes that they used for moving were the same boxes covering the bodies. You could not get more, you could not get clearer evidence. Right, until they match the fingerprints. So Robert's fingerprints, they were in the system from the California Department of Corrections. Mm. And they were able to get them and they matched them to the prints they found on the duct tape used to bind the women. They matched Robert's prints to prints they'd lifted from the Sheridan Court apartment. And they were also able to match a shoe print on the bumper of Roxanne's truck to Robert's tennis shoes. Wow. Okay. So they got a lot on him. Yeah. Which it turns out they won't even need. Oh, good. Okay. Do we get a confesh? He folds like a napkin. But we'll, the we'll get there. Kind. We'll get there. Okay. So they found Robert five and a half hours away in Stockton, California on December 13th. 
When the authorities contacted California initially, they learned that Robert was under investigation for the disappearance of a man named Scott George. Hmm. Okay. Scott went missing just two months before Roxanne and Michelle. So, they found Robert holed up in this motel room in Stockton. They got a search warrant to search that hotel room, and they found nothing but the most damning of evidence. God. Like, this guy was fucking stupid. They found the twenty-five caliber gun that was used to murder Roxanne and Michelle. They found a homemade silencer device for the gun. And that silencer device was covered in DNA material consistent with being a mixture of DNA material from both Roxanne and Michelle. Yikes, man. So there was no doubt that Robert Ackerman was their guy. Shortly after Robert was arrested for the murders, he made a few statements to the police. In one of them, he straight up confessed to killing Roxanne and Michelle. And, oh, by the way, Scott George isn't missing. I killed him. Really? Like, <laughs> just fucking guy. Just offered up mm-hmm. all yep, of the info. Yep, yep. 23-year-old Visalia, California resident Scott George was last seen alive on October 3rd, 1995 at a restaurant in downtown Visalia with Robert Ackerment. Mm-hmm. Scott's dad was dating Robert's mom, Darlene, and Darlene wanted Scott and Robert to get to know each other. So, Robert confessed that he shot and killed Scott in his 1990 Thunderbird during a night of drinking and driving around. Could you imagine Darlene? Right? Robert said murdering Scott was a quote-unquote sudden urge. Robert said, quote, Scott didn't piss me off. I had my gun on the right side of the seat. I just picked it up and shot him in the back of the head. God damn it. I no. Had, mm-hmm. I had just built a silencer for my handgun, so maybe it was a way to test it out. I don't know. You could have shot into the motherfucking air. Mm -hmm. He laughed when he said that. Yeah, I bet he did. Yeah. And then he said, quote, the next day I regretted having to clean up all of that shit and dispose of him. End quote. Lord. Like, Like, feelingless. Right. Emotionless. Robert also said that he killed Scott because Scott made a pass at him. So, like, it, it, he flip flops. In multiple ways throughout this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Robert confessed to shooting Scott four or five times, and he hid his body in an abandoned mine shaft on his dad's property. So he offered all of that up, and this is what he told the police about Roxanne and Michelle. Robert said that on the morning of December 4th, 1995, he used the phone at the Tiki Lodge to set up that 11 o'clock a.m. appointment with Roxanne to view the apartment. As part of a robbery plan. Okay. Mm-hmm. One thing here, and I mean, clearly Robert didn't pull this thing off very well. He was caught within like 10 days, give or take. Clearly. But what if Roxanne had written down his name and phone number for that appointment? I don't know. Right. Or, or what if, I wonder if he just refused to give it to her. Right. Or what if she refused to show him the apartment because he wouldn't give it to her? I don't know. Right. But... Maybe he said something like, hey, I've got to go. I'm mm-hmm. on my, you know, I'm walking into work. But I just wanted to say really quickly, I need, I, can, can I please come, come see this? Blah, right, blah, blah, right. You know? Yeah, I don't know. Of course she's going to go. Well, yeah, and she, she wanted to close the deal. So Robert said that he chose Roxanne Ellis because he knew that she was a property manager, part owner of the company, and he thought that she would have access to large sums of cash because of that. Robert said that when Roxanne met him at the empty apartment, he handcuffed her and took her purse. 
But then over the course of several hours, Robert realized that Roxanne didn't have the means to withdraw large sums of money from her credit cards or from the property management company's bank account. So eventually, Robert had Roxanne call her daughter Lori to let her know that she was going shopping. And this is what he wanted her to make something up to explain why she wasn't back yet right. and why she'd missed that other appointment. Robert was bound and determined to get his hands on some money, so he forced Roxanne to call Michelle and have her come to the Sheraton Court Apartments. That was the phone call about the dead car battery. Like, can you fucking imagine having to call the love of your life and essentially oh unwillingly lure them into this situation? God, Can you no, imagine? No. I'm sure she had a gun to her head. I'm sure she did. Awful. And maybe she thought somehow she'll hear it in my voice. Yeah. She will, you know. Or we can figure it out and, and he'll let us go. Once we're together. Right. Yeah. Awful. Shit. God damn it. That makes me, like, mm-hmm. that gives me the chills. Yeah. So when Michelle got to the apartment, Robert tied up and gagged both of the women It's unclear what he did with them during the next several hours. I'd imagine he was trying to find a way to get money. But later on that evening, Robert had both of the women climb into the back of Roxanne's truck. This is when he shot both of them twice in the head, drove them to the parking lot where they would later be discovered, covered up their bodies inside of the truck, and left the truck there. Fuck you. The next morning, Robert actually came back to the truck to cover the bodies with those cardboard boxes. So after Robert was arrested, he was extradited from California back to Oregon. For the crimes against Roxanne and Michelle, he was charged with four counts of aggravated murder, two counts of first-degree kidnapping, and one count of first-degree robbery. Now, I want to give you a little bit of backstory on Robert Excrement. Not because he's worth a shit, Yeah, But I just want you all to know how much of a douchebag he was, if it wasn't clear enough already. Robert was originally from California. He served in the Air Force. He earned his bachelor degree in only two years. Oh, wow. And he went on to get an MBA from Golden State University. So I know I called him fucking stupid, and he he was, but clearly he he was book smart. Right, also intelligent. Yeah. After college, Robert found a job as a district operations manager for a company called Roadway Trucking in L.A. But Robert wasn't too keen on that job. The hours were long, and he wasn't moving up the corporate ladder like he thought he would. So he quit that job to start his own software company. He developed a computer system, I guess, for the trucking company that he worked for, and he wanted to market and sell that system on his own. But people weren't really buying the program. And that pissed Robert off. He thought he was going to turn himself into like a millionaire and it just, it wasn't working out for him. So he moved to Visalia. They didn't have Shark Tank back then. Right. Yeah. No Shark Tank for Robert. He moved to Visalia and he looked for a new job, but he couldn't find anything worth his precious time. Besides a woman named Ala Kosova. Ala was an exotic dancer from Vegas and Robert very quickly became obsessed with her. Robert and Ala began a relationship, but as you'll see, it turned out to be kind of one-sided. I would assume his-sided? Yeah. Okay. Ala ended up testifying at Robert's trial, and she had a lot to say. She said, yes, we were in a relationship, but it was purely a financial relationship. Wow. As far as she was concerned. Hmm. Ala said she and Robert never had sex. Robert would spend up to $3,000 
per weekend on Allah at the club where she danced. So what the fuck? Mm-hmm. He needed to rob these people, but he had enough money to do that? Well, you'll see. Maybe it was credit cards. He bought her diamonds. He'd take her out to fancy restaurants. But Allah testified that she ended the relationship between her and Robert in August of 95, when Robert had emptied his savings, used up his retirement fund, oh boy, maxed out all all of his credit cards and had no money left to give her so she's like see you later boy bye pace ala changed her phone number and cut all ties with robert when he called her and said hey i'm out of money some guy in new york stole it all lie fuck you lie and you know what good good for you ala you take all the money you can get from a cowardly murdering scumbag take Take the money Take the money and run, Mm -hmm. honey. Yep. He knew what he was doing. It wasn't like she robbed him. No. Good, I say. I say good. I say. Good day. (laughs) Regardless, Robert began to spiral. He had quite literally zero money left. His fake girlfriend left him. His business tanked. He couldn't find work or at least work good enough for his little hands. And Robert began drinking heavily. Okay. It's the heavy drinking that Robert said allowed him to explore his quote-unquote darker impulses. He said, quote, Sometimes when I drink, I get angry. That anger comes out. End quote. So Robert began researching guns, bombs, and surveillance techniques. He even considered pulling a Breaking Bad, and he learned about how to make meth for money. No. But robbery would be quicker, he thought, and he told his old friends from the Air Force, quote, If I ever get desperate, I could always go shoot people and just take what they got. It's the American way. I'm just one of the Americans who didn't make it doing that. It's what this country is built on, taking from others. I tried my best. It just wasn't meant to be. Guess it's just fate. End quote. Wow. I feel like he always had homicidal tendencies. Clearly. I feel like he was just using his quote-unquote misfortune that he put on himself as an excuse to kill people. Because he could have found a fucking job. It was the early 90s. The economy was booming. He had credentials. It's like he wanted to do it his way on his terms or else it wasn't good enough. Right. And I'm not going to tell anyone to settle for a job that they hate. And I know jobs just don't grow on job trees, but... Are you sure? I'm sure. I don't think the situation was put on him. He emptied his savings on Allah. It was just an excuse. He had choices and he chose to be a fucking loser. Douchebag. I'm mad. Loser. Okay. Anyway. So Robert murdered Scott George, which I talked about earlier. And three weeks later, Robert and his mom, Darlene, moved to Medford, Oregon. And I'm pretty sure the reason why they moved to Medford was because of Kenneth, his brother that had already lived there. Darlene got a hold of the property management company that Roxanne and Michelle owned, and Roxanne did show them several other apartments, but Darlene and Robert ended up choosing a place to live that was not affiliated with Roxanne and Michelle's company. But this is how Robert initially met Roxanne, and I don't know what was going through his head. We know he assumed that Roxanne had access to lots of cash, but he hatched this robbery and murder plot from there. After he murdered Roxanne and Michelle, Robert called up Allah, and apparently Robert had sold his car and gotten some money, and he ended up spending $5,000 of that money on lap dances for Allah. What? So he had this fantasy of watching other women dance on her, and he spent five grand to make that happen. Like, I told you, he had choices, and that's the stuff that he does. Right. (sighs) 
I mean, like, good for those dancers. They made some money. But shit, Robert. Right. So that happened. And then he took Allah out to dinner on December 10th. After the dinner, Allah and Robert were sitting in Allah's truck, and she testified that Robert had pulled a gun and a stun gun on her. He told Allah that he'd murdered three people, two of them just a few days ago, and he took the silencer off the gun and showed her the blood caked inside of it. Ew, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no. Allah just so happened to know a police officer, and this officer was um, one of her regular customers at the club. And Allah told this officer what Robert had admitted to, but the officer didn't believe her. How? I don't know. But Allah once again cut ties with Robert Ackerman. Like, if you're going to sit there and say that you murdered three people, like, we're not speaking anymore. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, After Robert was arrested for the murders, Allah did end up visiting him in jail, though. And that's because the TV show Inside Edition paid her to visit him. Really? Yeah. And here's another fun fact. Allah eventually became a contestant on fucking Trump's reality show, The Apprentice. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> Isn't that weird? I'm, like I'm a weird connection. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Allah. So after Robert was arrested, this became even bigger news, and there was an active debate on whether or not the murders of Roxanne and Michelle were a hate crime. Some people thought that Robert was just sick in the head and he would have killed anyone. And some circle back to the things that Robert had said about lesbians being quote unquote sick. Also, it circles back to when he shot his first victim. Yeah. And supposedly it was because he had made a pass on him. Yeah. And then it wasn't. And then it was. Exactly. And then it wasn't. And yeah. now he's murdering two lesbians. Yeah. Like, well, there, it all just ties together for me yeah listen to this direct quote from robert oh robert himself yeah i'm going to throw in a big trigger warning for homophobia because it's pretty awful okay um he said quote bisexual women don't bother me a bit i couldn't help but think that ellis is 54 years old and had been dating a woman for 12 years isn't that sick that's someone's grandma for god's sake Could you imagine my grandma a lesbian with another woman? Yeah, I I couldn't believe that. It crossed my mind a couple times. Lesbo grandma. What a thing, huh? End quote. Lieutenant Tom Levine of the Medford Police Department said that local police had considered the possibility that the murders were a hate crime right from the beginning, but ultimately they couldn't 100% determine what motivated Robert to pull the trigger. And I don't know. I feel... Like, Robert knew that Roxanne was in a relationship with Michelle. Yeah. He knew because he had Roxanne call Michelle to help with her car. Right. Quote, unquote, help with her car. Right. And I personally think that Robert thought that their lives weren't very important because they were lesbians. Exactly. That's what I think. Or that it was sick or gross. And it didn't matter if he killed them. Right. I, I completely which, wholeheartedly yeah, agree. Which is fucking gross. And no one really knows what was going through his head. But that's the feeling that I get. I yeah. don't know. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the trial, but I'll highlight a few events. So we know that Robert was extradited and slapped with all of those charges, including four counts of aggravated murder. And on September 11th, 1996, Robert pled guilty to all of the charged offenses. He just straight up pled guilty. Just mm-hmm. guilty. Just, do what you I want did with it. Me. Yes. I'm not going to sit here for an entire trial. Mm-hmm. And since he pleaded guilty, the trial turned into the penalty phase right away. He was also going to face a trial in California for the murder of Scott George. 
but during the trial for the murders of Roxanne and Michelle, a family friend of Robert's, 22-year-old Taryn Sweeney, testified that on December 12, 1995, Robert came to her Visalia home, threatening to kill her and her mom because he wanted her mom's jewelry. Oh, fuck off, Like, he's just trying to take everything that isn't his, including these people's lives. Right. Robert was in the process of handcuffing Taryn Sweeney to the bed when one of her friends came to the door of her house. Robert allowed Taryn to answer the door. I ran, Taryn said. I was screaming, he's going to kill me, he's going to kill you, he's going to kill my mother. Taryn escaped with just a bump on her head, where Robert hit her with the butt of his gun. Ugh. During the trial, it was also revealed that Robert's own father was the one who turned him in, who told police where he was when Robert was hiding out in that motel room. Sure. Robert was referred to as that thing over there when Scott George's best friend was asked to point Robert out in the courtroom. Wow. And Ala Kosova spilled everything about her relationship with Robert, as I spoke about earlier. On December 27th, 1997, the jury unanimously agreed that pertaining to the murders of Roxanne Ellis and Michelle Abdill, Robert Ackerman had acted deliberately, that he posed a continuing risk to society, and that he should receive a death sentence. Wow. Yeah. The okay. court sen- and unanimously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The court sentenced Robert to death for each murder. Really? Yeah. Okay. One juror called Robert the personification of evil. I agree. I agree. During the trial for the murder of Scott George, Robert threatened his defense team and ended up defending himself. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably not going to end well. Never good, you fucking dolt. He ended up being sentenced to death for that murder as well. In 2011, Robert's sentence was commuted to life in prison instead of death because he was found to be delusional. He said he was hearing voices in his head, and he was unable to aid in his own appeals. During interviews while in prison, Robert would kind of go back and forth as to the motive for the killing of Roxanne and Michelle. He would go from, I hated lesbians, to it was just a botched robbery, and back and forth and back and forth. And that's I, so, that's yeah. even more just annoying than not knowing anything at all. You admitted to doing it. Right. You pled guilty. Just, on, just say why you did it. God. Like, what do you have to Without now? lying. Right. Yeah. In October of 2018, 50-year-old Robert Ackerman was found dead of natural causes in his prison cell at the Oregon State Penitentiary. So regardless of why he murdered Roxanne Ellis and Michelle Abdill, their killings changed the LGBTQ plus world forever. These women were actively fighting oppression and hate, all the while just trying to live their lives. And... They should have been honored for their activism, but instead they were brutally murdered and stolen from their family and friends. And it's just such a loss. One million percent. I just think that, you know, in the convo before the convo, we talked about how there's a lot of LGBTQ plus murders and disappearances and things like that that are not talked about and are swept under the rug and just you don't ever hear about right and i feel like this is definitely one of them yeah and i said in the convo before the convo which is a a patreon thing if you were wondering that when you google their names roxanne ellis and michelle abdill most of what comes up is about robert ackerman right i would have loved to known more about their lives that's that information just isn't really out there right Um, But I just wanted to take this moment to say 
that to all of our LGBTQ plus friends and family members and listeners, you are safe with us always. You are loved always, not just in June. And no matter where you are in your journey, you are valid. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. If anyone ever needs a safe space to talk something out or to vent or to try and make sense of anything that you're feeling, Mm -hmm. our email is always there. You can always reach out to us. We will 1 million percent be there for you as much as we can be. Mm -hmm. And we hope you have a good Pride Month. And a good Pride fucking year. A good Pride life. Life. I think that this week, you guys, I hope you're not disappointed, but I think we're going to skip reading, watching, listening. Yeah. I don't have anything to talk about. Neither do I. My children are out of school for the summer and I can't do anything. No. So. No. (laughs) I have done nothing. I read Ranker articles in bed at night and that's it. That is it. There's no doing anything. No. Um, No, no, no. I do have a podcast that I've started listening to, but I'm going to save it for next week. Okay. I think that you will all be waiting what is that? On what the that? edges of your seat. W- waiting with bated breath. Yes. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah. With bated breath, I wait. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> okay. You can send us an email at cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. You can look at our Instagram at cruelandunusualthepod. I tweet. She tweets. That was my chair squeaks. <laughs> your chair is very I, squeaky if you I ever tweet. hear it. My chair squeaks. Um, at Cruel Unusual Pod. Go to cruelinkmedia.com Dot for com. merch, show notes, source material, stuff like that. And join our Facebook group. Join it. That is Cruel and Unusual colon the group on FB. See you there. Don't be a square. Be a circle. I'm a circle. I'm a pear. All right. I love you. <laughs> bye. Love you. Bye. Bye.